Is this thing on? Uh, check, check, check. Uh, 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 yeah. Okay, 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 okay. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Ooh. 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 Welcome back, everybody. I always just spit my water all over the studio equipment. Oh, that wouldn't have been good. And guess what day it is? I think it's hump day. It's Wednesday, my friends. You know what that means? Tell them. This episode is going to be a little extra special. Yes. A dad special. We're debuting a brand new series here called The State Of... And the inaugural part of this series is going to be The State Of... The Flyweight Division... Very excited to get into this one, but Dom, we are halfway through our week. It's almost Turkey Day. Yes, it is. How are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling like I need to get on a treadmill for about an hour and a half tomorrow to get ready for the 10 plus pounds I'm going to be putting on Thursday. I don't know about you. <sighs> yeah, you know, I'm ready to go to war. <laughs> I'm ready to go in. You I'm know, ready to go a little ham. It's just that day where, you know, you visit the loved ones, you stuff your face with food, and you lay on a couch for like six hours after the fact and just watch football, you know? That's a good point. <laughs> uh, are they actually doing games this year? There are three games, three NFL games. That's good. It, it wouldn't feel like Thanksgiving without it, but right. I, I guess it wouldn't have surprised me either way. Yeah, nothing in 2020 surprises me these days, so. Yeah, although I, I don't know if I have much interest in watching football anymore. Um, rest in peace, Joe Burrow. Well, his leg anyway. Uh, yeah, um, my God, pain. Being a Bengals fan is such pain. Yeah, if there's any Bengals fans out there that listen to the podcast, uh can we get some F's in the chat for Noah and Joe Burrow's leg? I guess if you're F's. listening on an audio platform, you can't do that, but you get what I'm saying. F's, L's, the whole thing. <laughs> and you know what? That's a good segue, because that's why I watch fights. Yes, this is true. If there's anything that so, will never break our heart, Noah, it's fights. It's MMA. Yes. It's the UFC. Give us all that. Yep. So really the point of this series and for this episode, is for us to tell you guys kind of our thoughts on where, in this case, the state of the flyweight division is as of today, and kind of its future outlook. But, and this can change from episode to episode, but what's going to be really important here is for us to recap kind of how we got to this point. Yes. So the men's flyweight division's only been around for eight years. Um, so it's still a fairly young division um but there's been a decent amount of history in there but i think it's important to kind of recap that history so that way it can better explain our thoughts on where the division is today because i think it's very important what you say dom yes i mean everybody loves a little history lesson don't you say 100 percent. but i think it's about time to just dive in let's do it okay so, Dom, the men's flyweight division. Twenty twelve was when we got our start here. We were le- we lads at the time. We so were. I was old. not. 
privy to watching MMA fights at the time. But I know you still were kind of at the time, maybe a little bit more of a filthy casual yourself. (laughs) But for all that, you know, is said today about how the UFC never does tournaments, Bellator is the place you go for tournaments or Grand Prix, as they call them. You know, Pride used to do Grand Prix, so Bellator's kind of picked up that mantle. The UFC started the men's flyweight division with a four-man tournament. 2012 UFC said, hold my beer. However, I think this tournament and the way it kind of went is one of the reasons why you don't see them do tournaments anymore. Would you like to call it a disaster or not be quite that harsh? (sighs) Disaster might not be the right word, but it... The fact that it just blew up in their face a little bit, at least initially, I think was enough for them to be like, okay, why even do this? This is such a headache. But it was such, you know, what what ended up happening here um, in this four-man tournament, which I have the names here of everybody involved, essentially in our um, kind of our two matchups, you had a Mr. Joseph Benavides, and a Yasuhiro Yurishitani. That was beautifully said. Thank you. And then Demetrius Johnson, who everybody should know, and Ian McCall. So those were our four players here. And what ended up happening was the controversy really was on the the second fight I just mentioned. Demetrius Johnson, who you all should know, one of the greatest fighters of all time, still one of the top fighters in the world pound for pound yep. over at 1FC now but his the controversy came in his fight with Ian McCall and, and I'll tell you why here in a second but Joseph Benavidez and uh, Yurishitani no controversy Benavidez getting a second round TKO advancing to the finals easy work there for him and considering his staying power in a division, shouldn't come as a surprise that he started off with such a big win. However, on the other end, so you have this matchup with Johnson and McCall. The rules of this tournament were very interesting because you have to have a winner to advance. Right. You know? But draws do happen in the UFC or in MMA in general. So <clears throat> what you end up getting here is the rules in place. Uh, Cause it was three round fights. If the fight ended at a draw, if the judges scored it a draw, there was supposed to be a fourth round as like a sudden death to determine a winner. But what ended up happening in the Johnson-McCall fight was the fight happens. Um, Johnson comes out strong out the gate. Uh, eventually, the tide kind of sharp turns to where it gets more even. And then by the end, uh, McCall was actually very much getting the upper hand over Demetrius Johnson. Now, Johnson would go on to improve quite a bit. This is still back when he was like, I don't even know if he had been training full time at this point or not. But the judges' scorecards are read as a, uh, I believe, majority decision Mm -hmm. for Demetrius Johnson. 
Well, guess what, Dom? Mistakes were made. Yeah. To say the least. A big, a big mistake. And that essentially whoever miscounted the scorecards, misread the scorecards, however you want to misinterpreted them, however you want to uh, say it in your own mind. But the point is, is when Bruce Buffer said scorecards, he didn't say them correctly. Because what should have been read was a majority draw, and therefore there should have been a fourth round. And that fourth round, based on the way the fight was going, very much could have went in McCall's favor. So that blows up in the UFC's face because ultimately, once both fighters get to the back, they realized the mistake that was made. So this is not a mistake that like went unnoticed and Johnson just moved on and just kind of came about, came, you know, the story just came out years later. No, this, this was revealed that night. Dana was pissed and had to rebook this fight. So it halts this uh, tournament. Benavidez is just waiting, chilling, waiting for, to try to win the inaugural flyweight belt. Now, Demetrius Johnson wins very easily, I would say, in the second fight between him and McCall. A unanimous decision, won every round. But it, 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 a question is arose of what if, you know? Yep. What, what if? And considering all the bad luck Ian McCall's had in his career, which I won't indulge too much into here, but maybe somewhere down the line, uh, you wonder, it's a big what if for his career because maybe some of that bad luck wouldn't have happened if he had been the inaugural champion. Yeah, I mean, just think about it, right? Like, there there are a lot of those what-ifs here. And, like, you look at a guy like Mighty Mouse who went on to become, some people have him as their greatest of all time, but he's without a doubt one of the top five greatest ever in UFC history. And imagine having he loses this tournament, you know, and eight years <coughs> ago, do we ever see the rise of Mighty Mouse like we saw? I mean, seriously. It's crazy when you think about it that way. It would have at least potentially halted the momentum. I mean, considering how good he turned out to be, right? I kind of have a feeling that he would have gotten there regardless. But who knows? If he had been beaten right away, what would that have done to his psyche? You know, what would that have done to his confidence? Yeah, uh, those are real factors in a fighter's life and a in a fighter's performance. And we're talking about a guy are, in uh, Mighty Mouse here that he had always. Like, back at this point, he was working other jobs, working construction. Yeah, that's why I said point, he wasn't even training yeah, full-time. was, you know, debating on being a fighter. So you're like, well, if he loses in this tournament, does he see it as being worth doing? You know, it's yeah. crazy. I mean, when you he was a Bantamweight contender, yeah. contender before it. He had fought Dominic Cruz for a belt. Yeah, and, and obviously, um, when you look at Mighty Mouse, you're like, you know, granted the bantamweight guys aren't very big. You knew that Demetrius is like a hundred and twenty-five pounder through and through. Yeah, for sure. Now that sets up our finals uh, matchup: Joseph Benavidez, Demetrius Johnson. That's a pretty well-known matchup there. So the finals of this flyweight tournament ends up happening at UFC 152 at the Air Canada Center in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Headlined by a John Jones Vitor Belfort matchup. So this ended up being the co-main of that. Kind of a great placement, I think, for it. Yeah, yeah. And you get a 
barn burner of a fight, really, or at least it's a very, I guess, competitive, just a very, very competitive fight. Yeah. Especially when you measure to, you know, Mighty Mouse's uh, title defenses and here really his title win. It was definitely one of the more competitive fights on his reign because he did not have many. But here he does get a split decision win over Joseph Benavidez. 48-47, ultimately on the judges' scorecards. A very close fight. One that Demetrius kind of just... You know, they just kind of went back and forth, but ultimately Johnson kind of pulled away with the championship rounds, I think. Yep. And really that would kind of go on to be true for his reign anytime he was tested. Just kind of dug deep. Showed that champion mentality by really winning those champion rounds. But here's where we get our first UFC flyweight champion. Ultimately, it happens on September 22nd, 2012. And Dom, Demetrius Johnson would go on to hold this belt for about six years. Yes, and break the record for title defenses, consecutive title defenses in the UFC with 11, which is just unbelievable. Unbelievable run here. Um, showed off every single skill you could possibly imagine. Decision, you know, dominance, KOs, TKOs, you know, submissions, you name it, <clears throat> Demetrius did that. And uh, that's why Mighty Mouse truly is one of the greatest talents we've ever seen, pound for pound. Yeah, and here's where it's kind of our first, I guess main hurdle here for this division that I think is relevant for our topic today and that um, from that from this point until really even today uh, this division became it was just severely it, it just became a very hard division to sell for whatever reason yeah you know bantamweight division has always been one that thr- thrives it's only 10 pounds heavier mm-hmm for some reason, with men's flyweight, it was just the the casual fan couldn't accept it. Yeah, and now I, you could you could sit there and break it down as to why, you know, Demetrius was a very um, who's so talented, but being that his demeanor is very respectful, humble, just a very soft spoken, um, well educated guy. That's great, and I don't want to blame him for the the lack of marketability in the flyweight division, but he never was the star he should have been, and I think a lot of that is because he just he didn't get he didn't get brought down to the shit talking, which is a shame that yeah. that's the way it was. But I think that's a big reason for his lack of marketability. Now you saw flashes; he did have a uh, sponsorship afford a Reebok deal with Xbox, if you remember. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of his initial partnership in the gaming world, which is still carried on to his contract with 1FC today. Yep. Um, so, he, you know, there was flashes of, of that star potential that, you know, companies obviously saw in him, but casual fans just never grabbed on. Even yeah. when he broke the record. He broke the record on a box card. Yeah, I mean... It's weird for Mighty Mouse. Like, to me, I see him as 
he was a superstar. But a lot of people were just like, ah, it's just this 125-pound dude. He just fights these other guys that aren't on his level. He wins decisions. He doesn't finish fights. Blah, 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 blah. So it's like, to some, he was a superstar. To others, it's like, who? So uh, it's frustrating. And I can't imagine being Mighty Mouse either, how frustrating this was for him because of how good he was, how humble, how respectful, a true mixed martial artist through and through and just never got that level of respect that he truly earned and deserved. Yeah, what I mean by um, superstar, he was a superstar in every sense of the word when it came to his talent. But Just not on them pay-per-view buys. What? Just not on them pay-per-view buys. No, that's, that's ultimately the measure of being a superstar in my eyes. Yep. Um, because that's just the way I look at it. It's like, how marketable are you? Like, how much are you are you able to sell? His, anytime he was headlining a card, you're talking record low numbers for the modern era. That's a shame. It really is. Because a lot of these fights were actually very good, mm-hmm. which I guess I can get into now with some of these title defenses here. So he wins the belt, obviously, as I said, UFC 152. Immediately defends it on three back-to-back-to-back UFC on Fox cards. Starts with John Dodson. This was another very competitive fight if you go on his run here. John Dodson hurt Mighty Mouse multiple times in the fight. Dropped him, I think, at one point. This was a super close fight. And and you would see this early on in Johnson's uh, run, these close fights. But he would rematch both of these guys later on and handled them much easier than he did here. And that just shows the growth of when he finally started taking his training seriously and doing yeah. it full time, just untapped potential that was there. So then you got um, the win over John Moraga. That was an arm bar submission in the fifth round, uh, knocking out Benavidez in their second fight in about two minutes. Then he gets a decision win over Ali Bogatinov. That was a, a brute of a man at that time. Chris Carriasso at UFC 178. He got a Kimura submission finish on. You had Kyoji Horiguchi at UFC 186. Uh, that was one. He got an armbar submission in the last yeah. second of the fight. Yeah, crazy. Just ridiculous. The the finishing instincts of Mighty Mouse are some of the best that you'll find. Oh, for sure. What's funny, funny, it's very similar to Davis and Figueredo, who's the current men's flyweight champion. Yeah. Figueredo, if there's one thing that I think he, outside of his power and his pressure and, you know, his, uh, his slick submission skills that are have been shown, I think, uh, like, Truly, his biggest attribute is his finishing instinct. Yeah. That guy knows how to finish a fight. Baits people into the knockout punch. Beautiful transitions to work into a submission. Yeah, he's he's special to watch. And, again, we'll get in more of him after we're done with Mighty Mouse. But this is a guy that I think does have potential to go on a very serious run here. Yep, true. So then... You get John Donson again by unanimous decision at UFC 191. That fight was definitely more one-sided for Mighty Mouse. It just showed really how much he had grown in the sport compared to Dodson by that point. 
UFC 197, probably one of the one of the uh, like picture, like you know, if you want to like have like certain fights that fully represent well this title run, I think this fight here with Henry Cejudo, the first one, uh, is up there. Cejudo being this young hotshot, Johnson comes in and smashes him in less than three minutes. Needed a body, punches to follow up. Uh, Cejudo was very young and green at the time, obviously, as we'll get into in their second fight. But to see Johnson just once again, just for all the flag he got for being, you know, and really this division as a whole for being decision fighters, he fit, he went in there and looked to finish just about everybody. Yeah. And he did most of the time. Exactly. After Cejudo, then you get the Tim Elliott fight, a fight that this is nobody a slept really. On fight. It is. This happened at the Ultimate Fighter Tournament of Champions finale. Essentially, this was a season where you had men's flyweight content, um, contestants. Tim Elliott ends up winning the season, and his prize is he gets a title fight with Demetrius Johnson. A lot of really nobody took this idea seriously. Sure, there might have been a few people that whispered, oh, Matt Sarah, Matt Sarah. However, I don't think anybody really gave uh, Tim Elliott a chance here. Including myself, until I tuned in that <laughs> night in our dorm room and remember being very surprised at the performance I saw. The, the, the amount that Tim Elliott was able to at least threaten Johnson with submissions. Yeah was the most that Johnson had been tested in years at that point. And that's why it was, you know, even though ultimately Johnson won the fight, I would say pretty handedly, uh, it, it was a great fight and made even better by the fact that you saw Johnson actually be somewhat tested. And I think a lot of that was because of Elliott's size for the division. Yeah. Johnson is very much a 125er. He is a small guy. Yeah, this fight... Elliott's big. Yeah, yeah. Tim Elliott's good, uh, big, a dog, very tough. This fight reminds me kind of of the flyweight title defense we just saw from Valentina Shevchenko against Jennifer Maya, uh, in a sense, you know what I mean? Where, uh, you know, a challenger comes in, you don't really think much of it. We saw the odds that Valentina had this past weekend, insurmountable odds. But yet Jennifer Maya takes a round from her, presents a few challenges throughout the entire fight, but overall it's still dominant for... Uh, Valentina, so kind of a similar fight, both of those. That's a good point. It actually is. Uh, I thought it, it was a much more exciting fight than the one we saw on Saturday. But yeah. I, the point stands that it, it, you you hadn't seen Johnson even lose a round really in yeah. years. Yeah. And to see him even be tested, I don't. I mean, like that, especially against a guy who was, you know. Just, he just won the ultimate fighter like he very unproven it was very much a shock yep it was more and, and, and luckily i don't want to say luckily but i'm happy though that the credit was more given to um tim elliott than take it away from johnson mm-hmm. kind of like because i think we saw some of that with valentina on saturday and i was even a little guilty of that yeah where it's like instead of giving the credit to jennifer maya it was like we were taking credit away from Shevchenko. Right. 
So after Tim Elliott, uh, Wilson Hayes, that armbar submission in the third round, that was a fight where he just dominated Wilson Hayes for all the fight, battered the guy. Yeah, and that again, was pure dominance. Yeah, that one. Again, finished the fight. Sure, it was the third round, but I mean, he had, I mean, that fight could have been stopped well before probably. I mean, he, he straight up just dominated him. And this is where we get to the record breaker. Oh, UFC, UFC 216. What a way to break a record. Maybe the best submission in UFC history. An unbelievable video game-esque right here from my I, I ask you all that are listening to look up the Demetrius Johnson armbar submission over Ray Borg at UFC 216 because it's going to be hard for us to really give you the – to paint the picture <laughs> – without you seeing it, but I'll try my best. Yeah, this is going to be tough. I'm interested to see how you do this. Uh, Ray Borg, young kid, not really looked at as a, a true as true competition for Mighty Mouse. And really that proved to be true <laughs> in this fight, unfortunately, because Johnson dominated the whole thing. But again, he's dominating. He's in the fifth round. Three minutes in, there's a minute, 45 seconds left of this fight. Johnson could easily coast his way to a victory at this point. Instead, he, I believe, slams Borg down on the mat. And while he's going, while Borg's body is is falling onto the mat. Ray Borg's body is literally flying through the sky. Yes. Johnson is at the same time putting an armbar submission on, like a flying armbar, essentially. And Borg has to tap. I mean, Borg tries his hardest to fucking fight out of it. It's real nasty looking. Yeah, Johnson nearly snapped the arm. Yeah, and Borg finally taps. What a way to, you know, take that record for the most title defenses. Truly incredible. I th- I would go as far as say to me that's the best submission in UFC history. I I think it's got to be it's got to be one of if not the best. And the fact now, that it was the record breaker is just even more so outstanding. Yeah. Now I'm sure Dana and the powers that be had, had thoughts of uh, throwing away or canning the division before this fight. But this time period is where you really saw some of the behind the scenes spilling into the headlines for this division because this fight with Ray Borg was not what Dana wanted for Mighty Mouse's record-breaking defense. He wanted a super fight with TJ Dillashaw. Now... The problem with that was Mighty Mouse really, he just, he kept saying that if TJ could prove that he could make 125, it, at the time it, it, you could, it looked like, I don't want to say it looked like, but a lot of people were saying that Demetrius was ducking TJ. He was saying that if TJ can prove he can make 125 and win at the division, then I'll, I'll fight him. Um, Maybe he was privy 
or at least somewhat knowledgeable to maybe some of the stuff TJ would have would have been using to get down to 125. I don't know. But this soured the UFC and Demetrius Johnson's relationship pretty quickly. Yes, it did. D, uh, Dana White walking down the street gets interviewed by TMZ. He says, "I don't think Demetrius Johnson's number one pound for pound fighter." He's like, "I like a fighter who would fight anybody." He's like, "Conor McGregor is number one in my eyes." And I was like, "Dana, I love you, but..." Come on, man. To me, that's just more the dollar signs talking there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so this is this is where you see the cracks start to form here. So Demetrius' next fight, after beating the record, is a rematch with Henry Cejudo at UFC 257, headlined by a rematch. 227. Between, yeah. 257. Said? You said 257. Oh, I... My bad. UFC 227. <clears throat> the headliner was TJ Dillashaw, who was now the Bantamweight champion, and Cody Garbrandt, who he had taken the belt from 10 months prior. And this was set up so that if TJ and Mighty Mouse win, it looked like that might be the fight they would book next. But that's not what happened that night, Dom. Hey, uh... You get a five-round classic. Yeah, incredible. Fight. Incredible fight. Probably the However, best flyweight fight we've ever seen, really, to this day. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. The winner that is decided, however, is up for debate, I think is a good way to put it. Yeah. Henry Cejudo ends up getting the decision nod here in a fight that many, including my co-host, believe Demetrius won. But Henry gets the nod. He gets the win. Flyweight has its second ever champion six years into the division's run. So it kind of flips flips a lot of things, right? You know, so Cejudo wins. This is back before he was really doing the King of Cringe and yeah. stuff like that. He was still just kind of this guy. Very that, humble. Uh, yeah, respectful. I mean, and even after he wins here, you didn't really see him do the King of Cringe stuff up until kind of what happens here is uh, they decide to do TJ versus Henry anyways. Yeah, and I just want to even say... Though, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, even though the, the I guess, in their eyes probably would have been better for business was to have Demetrius and TJ fight, but they decided just to go, go ahead with it. Yeah, and... We're going to obviously get into this, or at least I'm assuming. But, you know, you, you automatically assume we're talking longest, or the most, not longest run, not longest reign, I should say, but most consecutive title defenses. Loses a split decision against a guy that he finished in the first fight, and you're not going to give us a trilogy? You're not going to give my man, Mighty Mouse, a rematch to get his belt back after he's had it for six years? No, you know what they're going to do? Oh, my goodness. Tell them what they did. Not, just a few months later, they trade him. Traded him? Are, are we playing basketball? <laughs> You've never – I've. Ne it's never happened before. What are we doing? They trade him to 1FC for Mr. Funky himself, Ben Askren. Oh, man, did this ever come out of left field. It was one of the most shocking <laughs> – 
pieces of news from 2018. God, I wish we were doing a podcast back then. <laughs> I can't imagine what we would have said back uh, then. I mean, who knows? So it was so unprecedented. That's the right word. You've never seen the UFC really cooperate with these other promotions, even in that capacity. So this just, I think, again shows the soured relationship between Johnson and the the UFC. It essentially, For all of his talent, yeah. They went had a third fight with Cejudo as not really being worth their time. Yeah, that's just crazy. Uh, it, it essentially is saying, you know, this relationship, for whatever reason it may be behind the scenes, was unsalvageable. Couldn't fix it. Was it on Mighty yeah. Mouse's side more? Was it just on the UFC wanting to just part ways and go a different route? You know, we'll probably never know all the details, but it was just such a wild time. I think a lot of it was kind of out of either party's hands i think there's a lot of frustration and the lack of i guess return on their investment you know the ufc felt like they probably had invested a lot into demetrius and they weren't really seeing the returns on that and the pay-per-view buys and stuff and that's not really on johnson i mean he's just there to fight but i'm sure there became frustration in the sense of maybe he they didn't feel like Johnson was doing enough to sell the fight and things like that. But, you know, you look back at Anderson Silva's title run, which is who Johnson beat for the record. Anderson Silva didn't even speak English, no. at least not well. No. It was truly a guy who had just all the talent you'd ever seen. And he sold well because of it. Yeah. And sure, like, you know, some of his biggest fights were when he would be fighting someone like Chael Sonnen, who would talk that shit. Yeah. But he was still selling well before that. I mean, it wasn't just those fights. It wasn't even after that. So it's um, it's interesting, again, that Mighty Mouse has got one of the closest skill sets as far as that we've seen to Anderson Silva. And yet... In, in a lot of ways, kind of behaved the same way, but he, he just didn't get that respect. Yep. So I think that's what kind of led to this move, but it it wasn't a good look, right? You had your most dominant champion ever in the UFC. Didn't even give him another fight. He was just set off. Now, he would be happy with this move. He's, he's always even since then talked about how happy he is at 1FC. 1FC has invested heavily into Demetrius, including um, giving him an eSports team, I believe. I don't know if you know much about that, Dom, but... <clears throat> now that you mention it, I'm going to have to do some digging. I am a yeah, big fan was, of the uh, eSports. I forget, I forget the details, but it was they invested very heavily into him, and I, I know he's still going. He just fought last in October. So it's, I mean, he's 3 0 over at 1FC, so it seems to be working out. But now we got Henry Cejudo. So what's next? Triple C, the King of Cringe, the Olympic gold medalist, you name it. Henry Cejudo is just on that list. Yes, he is. His first title defense is announced against TJ Dillashaw, like I mentioned. And at first, it's announced as like a headliner for UFC 233. The UFC would change those plans when they announced their move from Fox to ESPN. Scrap 
UFC 233. There is no such thing as UFC 233. It doesn't exist. Which is, which is bizarre. <laughs> it's bizarre that the UFC can just skip a number. But <clears throat> they, they scrap it and they make it the headliner for the first card on ESPN+. Plus. And, you know, this is where the narratives pick up. This is where the, I would say, a lot of the MMA community really picks up on this narrative that Henry and TJ would run with it as well. This fight really turned into being for this, the future of the flyweight division. Yeah. It was looked at if TJ won, this division was being scrapped. And if Henry won, it would be saved. Saves the flyweights. Yep. Is that true? We don't know. Yes. And we'll Dana White know. would never say for sure. He kept saying, I will say it didn't look great, where instead of just saying, no, we're not planning to scrap the division, he said, we'll see what happens on Saturday. Yeah, he's big on, you know, saying, you know, we'll see how it plays out, that narrative. He's big, yeah, big fan of that. But when you're talking about something as serious as scrapping a division... People's livelihoods, that, people's careers. You would think that there might be more of a answer there, but to me that's like an answer without giving one. So it tells me that it was kind of being discussed quite a bit. And I think what really... Uh, another thing that kind of picked these narratives up was a lot of the men's flyweight roster was being released at the time. Yeah. So in kind of the lead up here, um, even like I believe a couple of Henry's training partners or uh, teammates have been released. So he he went in here and was like, I, you know, he picked up on that saved. I'm the savior to flyweights, and then he started doing some cringy shit. You're know, like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if I'm really into this, <laughs> but. The buildup ended up being kind of weird. TJ looked absolutely like a zombie in his weight cut. Yeah. And to face off, you know, Henry's got the crown on. He's got the, the, the like, rubber snake. Yeah, he brought out the toy snake and was hitting it. Yeah. Um, uh, so, very weird. Yeah. If you look up the definition of cringe, I'm pretty sure a picture of Henry Suda pops up. And I think he likes it that way. He definitely does. <laughs> Yeah. But the fight happens. Doesn't go the way I think anybody thought. No. Even if you thought Henry would win. Not in this um, fashion. He dropped TJ three times. Yeah, it was twice. one after another. Uh, started by the big seconds. head kicks. Yeah. 33 seconds he was dropped twice, three times maybe. Finished with strikes. Ref steps in. Now there is some debate on if the stoppage was too early, but seeing how much TJ had been beat up in literally 30 oh, seconds. Yeah, I thought it was I fine. Had, <laughs> I, had, I had seen enough. I had seen enough. So Henry wins. And the division saved. Yes, the savior. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least that's, that's, again, the narratives at that time. It was the division saved. Dana would never, and to this day has never came out and said that that fight or that Henry Cejudo in general saved that division. It is completely unclear what really it 
what changed his mind or if that really did change his mind or what. However, no more talk. You know, the, it's probably still in the back of people's minds. Like, okay, is this division still going to be around? Because ultimately what you see after this is Henry will end up moving up to Bantamweight just a few months later at right. UFC 238 to go for champ champ status against Marlon Marais. Marlon Marais. Interesting. TJ was the champion, I thought, before. TJ ended up testing positive after his fight with Henry for EPO, which is, as you don't know, uh, Lance Armstrong. That's all I'm going to say there. So he gets a two-year suspension. He uh, relinquishes his belt. This is the fight to determine the new Bantamweight champion. Henry versus Marlon Marais. Henry ends up winning the belt. And another dominant performance. He, he drops the flyway belt, essentially. Yep. So he gets and it leaves those questions. Okay. The guy who supposedly saved the division has now left the division less than six months later. Yeah. I mean... He makes his first title defense January 19th of 2019. Officially, after winning the Bantamweight title, he's officially champ champ in the middle of that year. Then officially on December 19th, so exactly 11 months after his defense in January, relinquishes the flyweight belt to focus on Bantamweight, which we saw he goes on to make um, a one defense of the Bantamweight title as well. But now all of a sudden... After the division is quote unquote saved in January of that year, in December of the same year, there's all of a sudden no champion and no direction on where this division's going. And I think that that finally being put into place where he would drop that belt in December, I think people had seen that coming for months at that point. Right, right. So it was like really for even longer than that, you know, ever since he won the Bantamweight belt, it was no longer talk of, for the most part, about him defending the 125 belt. It seemed like it was inevitable that he was going to drop the belt, but yet they kept it on him the whole time. There was really never talk of him fighting someone like Benavidez or Figueredo. You know, he was all about the Bantamweight contenders, right? Yeah. Finally, he gets the belt dropped. So then that leads us into 2020. And this is where the Davison Figueredo era rise the profits. Yeah, it's it's been only a year, but it's safe to say that if if he caps this year off the way I think he he will, we are looking at a potential new era for this flyweight division. Yep, but it doesn't start in the best way. Yeah, it couldn't have started in a worse way. <laughs> so this is again the the trials and tribulations of the men's flyweight division. We finally get a direction. February 29th at Norfolk, Virginia. Love that city, by the way. Fun place to visit if you're ever in Virginia. Interesting. Yes. I did not know that. <laughs> we get our new matchup for the vacant flyweight championship. Joseph Benavidez, Davidson Figueredo. If um, 
Dom, I don't know how you felt at the time, but for me, I knew who Joseph Benavidez was. I was not super aware of Davis and Figueredo. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that this was a veteran versus a prospect. Um, at the time, I believe Davison would have been, let me think, he's 9-1 and one now, I think, in the UFC. He would have been 7-1, and 6-1, and one, something like that, going into this fight here. So, yeah, um, a relatively unknown, uh, you know, Brazilian fighter, always been a finisher. He was finishing fights in the UFC, had... Uh, coming off the big win against Tim Elliott, I believe, going into this title fight here. But still, it's still the flyweight division. So, especially now and during this time frame, basically all of 2019, no title. So these flyweights are just fighting without any attention given to them. No one really knew who uh, Davison Figueiredo was, but everybody still knew who Joseph Benavidez was. And I'd have to imagine a lot of people thought, you know, Benavidez here, he's going to probably get the belt, finally. You know, after all this time, two title uh, <coughs> challenges against Demetrius in the past, it's finally Joey B's time. And, and I think they also were um, wanting that to be the case. Yeah. Because Benavidez is always and still is, you know, a stand-up guy, a very respected guy in the community. A true feel-good uh, story. Yeah, amongst the fighters, he's very respected. And then it's only heightened the want for him to get that belt. Yep. By the fact that Davidson Figueredo misses weight. Yes. Yes. He misses weight. Benavidez makes weight. So ultimately, this title fight is one sided. If Benavidez wins, he wins the belt. If Figueredo wins, he does not. Yes. So that makes people root for Benavidez more here because you want that direction with the belt for the title. That's not the way it goes. The fight um, would be less one-sided than their next matchup, but yet it was still still just much of the same. You see an accidental headbutt that somehow to this day gets blamed on Davison. Would, yeah, and it, I was about to say the same thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Headbutt, obviously, especially in this magnitude, was bad. You know, nobody wants that. But Joseph is known to dip his head in, in and out, and in and out. And he essentially dipped in to Davison's head, which caused, you know, the gash on his head and, you know, what some say led to the finish, which, you know, definitely hurt Joey B. But it's not like Davison went in and headbutted him like he was Bubba Ray Dudley from the Dudley Boys, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I, I think it's a stupid excuse. Um, it obviously hurt Benavidez. The headbutt did. I mean, that's just the reality, unfortunately. He started bleeding. He went to, like, kind of check his cut. And the moment he, like, shifted his focus, Davison landed that oh. overhand right. Oh, from hell. Oh, man. Flatlined him. Flatlined him. Even followed up with a hammer fist. Oh, it was Ugh. like forearm shots to the face. It was brutal. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Davison had no love loss for Joseph Benavides. <laughs> no. Davison wins the fight. But not the belt. But not the belt. So, so we, again, we, we still continue don't have a champion. <laughs> we continue on without a champion. And... They decide to rebook this fight, and I think that uh, was fair. Yeah, it made I sense. I know that 
I know Joe Benavidez got knocked out pretty brutally, but there was enough question marks yep, exactly. considering the headbutt and whatnot to warrant a rematch. And Benavidez made weight, Figgy didn't. You had you you wanted to see Benavidez get another shot. Yep. It was accepted that this would be his final opportunity for the belt. And, yeah, I would say that was his final opportunity. Oh, um, this is if, a fight we've talked about maybe more than any other on this podcast. Yeah, um, I mean, if we're talking just pure dominance, this is one of the top fights I'd recommend, honestly. <laughs> like, from start to finish, not that it was very long, Davison came out there and basically said, you know, I'm going to shut up all of the haters, all of the critics. I'm going to make the weight. I'm going to beat one of the best flyweights of all time. And not, on, not only am I going to beat Joseph Benavidez worse than I did in the first fight, I'm going to essentially dismantle his entire career in this fight. <laughs> and that's what he did. I mean, it literally made everybody think he should retire afterwards. It was, it was truly brutal. I did not hear one person saying Benavidez should retire before the fight. And now it's like nobody wants to even put him in matchmaking matchups because they think he should retire or treating him like he's Anderson Silva or Shogun Hua or someone like that. And you know, this is, it sounds like we're shitting on Benavidez here, but truthfully, he didn't even do anything wrong or like he didn't look bad Davison just looked like a different beast I, I can't even begin to describe he just looked next level in this fight it, it really is I mean, incredible. It, was just, it was a rise to prominence but I I don't know if I I mean Benavidez did look pretty bad in the sense that from literally punch one I mean he, it was a 10-7 round oh yeah it was it. dropped three times in two or three different submissions um it was just and this was all in one round by the way folks this this yeah. ended in one round yeah so i super one-sided but so brutal that like you were in awe you yeah. know davison is the champion officially he made weight this time we we can move on and you know, Davison has the look. He had, and really, that kind of leads us to where we are today, in a way. Yeah. Really, last Saturday was his first title defense against Alex Perez. We've talked about that a lot um, in Monday's episode, but again, finished the rap, finished the fight in two minutes with a very slick transition on the oh, ground into a, a, a seamless. Guillotine choke. I saw that transition he did today with like that leg roll. Uh, it was in slow motion, and I was just like, "Wow!" I mean, yeah, this guy is really special. <clears throat> and he's immediately turning around in three weeks to headline the very next pay per view against Brandon Moreno, who also fought on Saturday, and really should have been fighting for the belt last Saturday. The the shortest turnaround ever for a champion to make another title defense. 24 or days. Or challenger, yes. 
The only one that's close for Challenger is 28 days, and that was Derek Lewis. Yep, and Moreno's doing it on 21. And I believe for champion, quickest turnaround, it's tied between, I think, Ronda Rousey and Matt Hughes at 56 days. So Davison yep. beating this by 35 days here. This is unprecedented stuff. Yeah, so that is what led us to this point. Now, Dom, it's time to talk about kind of our thoughts on where the division is right now and the future outlook. The and I'll just start by saying, division. yeah, yes, yes, correct. And I'll just start by saying that, you know, a lot, there's a lot that can change, you know, next month or three weeks from now less than three weeks where we have a big fight that can shake up the division and send it into a different direction. And if Brandon shocks the world, I mean, we're, we're looking at, at we might be changing this whole episode could be changed in our thoughts, but right now, Davison, he's a star in the making with a ceiling. Yes. He, doesn't speak English. He is a flyweight. These are factors in that I don't think he'll ever be like a huge selling star. But if he's going to have a chance of being that, then what he's doing right now, keep doing that. I'm not saying you got to fight every three weeks, but (laughs) just... Everything he's doing is just continuously proving that he is a champion and like a true fighter. Dominant, yeah, dominant. He, kind of, he plays the part. He dresses the part. He's got the hair going on. Yep, the dyed hair. Like he, he looks like a savage, and he fights like one too. Oh, because I think that's going to be a big thing for him. Is if he can keep finishing fights in these brutal fashions and the way he's doing it oh yeah man people are gonna take notice he, and he you know you know he's got uh he's got the entire backing of a country in brazil which is big we know how they're essentially super fans over there and love supporting their fighters so that's big for him um and really does kind of have that family man i in the like countdown for example with his wife and daughter um the very emotional tribute to his grandfather when he took his belt to his grandfather's grave. Um, so, you know, a lot of stories here to go off and to market with Davison on top of the fact that he's just dominant when he's in that octagon. It's He's in a very good spot with, uh, like you said, he does have a ceiling, but it is relatively high. He can go decent lengths here. Um, I'm interested to really see, especially if he were to beat Moreno here, because essentially this is going into all the, the state of this division right now. The winner of this fight in three weeks is supposed to get Cody Garbrandt. And yeah. I know, like, you and I aren't even big on this necessarily, like Cody going down, but this is big for the division and big for either one, whether Davison or Brandon Moreno wins uh, at 256. Because Garbrandt is a household name. That's fair to say. Am I am I correct in saying household name there? Um a household name. In terms of MMA fans, you know. Yeah, yes, he he is definitely 
he would be the biggest name in the entire flyweight division. I mean, it's the biggest name that they've had crossover since, I mean, yeah. And, and I, I think it's safe to say he's probably the biggest name in the Bantamweight division, really. I mean, outside of guys like Jose Aldo, who's not really a true Bantamweight, hasn't been his whole career, uh, Garbrandt kind of just has that star power behind him. And for similar reasons to Davison, where Cody's always in great fights, finishes fights, had that three-fight skid, which I think hurt him a lot, but at the same time, bounces back, has that viral knockout last second at the buzzer. So um, the stars are aligning here for a really big fight for whoever the flyweight champion may be at that time. So that's that's one part here in this state of the division that is hanging and dangling that's really not that far off in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's that's really true. And you see the UFC's kind of dependence on this division late in the year. And it, it, it's definitely uh, promising because this is the 2020. Now, 2020 is... Uh, just an asterisk year all around <laughs> it is not a normal year but it is worth noting that it is the first year that four different ufc events were headlined by the men's flyweight title yep two fight nights and then we're gonna have back-to-back pay-per-views it's promising for sure if there were, if you want to go into some potential negatives or things that could hold back the division will start with the fact that there's only about 20 fighters on the roster for that division and to me what i think we're seeing here is when we saw those cuts being made sure at the time it was probably due to the fact that they were considering cutting the whole division but at this point, I think what you're seeing is the UFC kind of build this thing back up from the ground up. Yeah. You know, a lot of these guys that were fighting during the initial launch of the division and kind of that 2014 to 2016 time frame, they're not as interested in keeping those guys around as remnants of a time where I guess they just kind of want to move past yeah, there's only so many of those guys left, especially as I'm looking through this top 15 here. Um, another potential negative, but also sort of a positive. It's very top-heavy, you know. Essentially, one through seven, we've got some stiff competition, some decent names, a couple veterans, but a lot of them still relatively new, fresh faces, prospect status. But then if you go, you know, eight through 15... You know, you got a couple vets. You got a guy like Tim Elliott, Jordan Espinoza, but a lot of them relatively unknown. And again, I get it's flyweight division, and that's part of the reason. So it's just how are they going to kind of go about getting these other flyweights' names out there? Because if you look at, you know, that 15 through 8 and then look at the 1 through 7, you're going to know a lot of people in that 1 through 7, but you're not going to know a lot in that 8 through 15. So how are they going to go about the division as a whole? rather than just this top half. Right. And then I guess, uh, not to get too negative here, because ultimately I think the, the future of the division is very bright. Yes. We'll, we'll hopefully convey that with our words, but the the last kind of potential drawback here is how long 
you know, regardless of if Davison wins or not against Moreno, he's a mainstay in this division. Like, if he were to lose to Moreno, I'm telling you right now, he is better than Moreno pretty much anywhere the fight goes. Moreno's definitely a big-time grappler, and I, I know that that's going to be looked at as an advantage, but when you see the submission ability of someone like Davison, it kind of negates that mm-hmm. in a lot of in a lot of ways. So ultimately, Davison losing would have would be a big upset. It would it would again on paper he is better pretty much everywhere. Right. So, regardless of if he lost or not, I mean he's a mainstay in the top of the division for as long as he's there. And that's going to be my point here is yeah, that's a how good. long can Davison keep making flyweight, keep fighting at flyweight? Because yep. it is an absolutely brutal cut for him. Yes. From what we heard, from what I've been hearing, is that, you know, his cut was, it looked bad um, for this past Saturday. But he was cutting down, I believe they said he was about 152 pounds. When he, in his one UFC loss, he cut from 165. Oh, my word. That's literally a quarter of his body weight almost. That's not good. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. So you're talking like some serious potential damage to his, to those internal organs. I mean, that's not healthy. Yeah. So how long can he continue to do that? You know, if he was cutting to 135 from 155 pounds or whatever, now you're talking more manageable. Now you're talking not completely depleting yourself going in. So after this fight with Moreno and maybe that potential matchup with Garbrandt, you got to wonder when his jump to Bantamweight that we keep talking about is going to happen yeah it kind of where did that where does that leave the division at that point yep it's a good question however i don't think it's all you know i don't think it's uh all for loss or i think it's all a somber outlook i think there's a lot of potential stars in this division that can really carry the the mantle you know guys like moreno guys like Askar Askarov or I mean Benavidez is still technically there and I, I don't necessarily believe that guy has to retire, you know. Uh Brandon Roy Val, Alex Perez who just fought, Kai Kara France. <clears throat> I think what you have here in these group of guys is sure again, will any of these guys be like true superstars, household names? Likely, no, probably not. Yeah. But they've all proven to put on some great fights and can really be like, you know, maybe they're, maybe you don't see a dominant champion for a while and that's fine. But it's, uh, it all kind of comes down to just, I think that the future of the division is very bright, very healthy with this top crop of guys. Yeah, yep. Because even though you're talking about it being top-heavy, I definitely think it's much better than it was three years ago. 
two yeah, years I, ago. And I think definitely in the short term, it's good when you have such a top-heavy division because there's so many different fights you can make. So it's really just the long term, how are we going to get these other guys, build them up a little bit more, I guess, uh, for the division yeah, as a whole. True. Like you said, only 20-something people on the roster <clears> for this <throat> division, so hopefully they can find some more prospects there, bump that up a little bit. Um, so it's really just a big process here. The UFC is no slouch when it comes to finding talent, so I have no doubt that they can find other phenomenal flyweights. Uh, it's just a matter of if, or not if, not a matter of if, but when, you know, and uh, where they're going to find them at, what organizations, what type of fighter styles, all that fun stuff comes into play here. But uh, there are um, a lot of good things with this division, especially right now. I think you and I both even said before we started recording, and it's good to probably reiterate it here on this tail end of the episode. Um, we believe that this is probably, as a whole, the best state that the men's flyweight division has possibly ever been in. I would say so. It's at least the most exciting. Yeah. Most competitive uh, type yeah. deal, yeah. Even if Davidson does dominate the division for however much longer he's fighting in that division, these guys right behind him are putting on some terrific fights. I mean, and I think that's that was going to be my point where building these next crop of guys up, really it all comes down to putting on the performances. I mean, the UFC can only do so much when it comes to promotion. You got to give them something to promote, right? You know, and that's where I'm going to give a big shout out to Brandon Royval, who I'm a big fan of. And yes, he did lose on Saturday, but you go back to uh, he debuted on short notice against Tim Elliott, a veteran of the division at that point. Gets a super big underdog upset win with the submission finish post-fight interview he basically breaks down talks about how he doesn't think his performance was good enough to get a bonus that meant he was going to have to go back to his day job the next day you really he really poured his heart out you really felt that and it was kind of a brutal reminder of what a lot of these guys go through mm -hmm. in their climb to the top you know it's not as glorious of a lifestyle being a fighter as some would think, right. you know, you see Conor McGregor and the flash that he has, that's not the reality for 90% of the guys that do it. Well, and even for a guy like Conor, you look at their rise and what he had to do to get there. I mean, we're talking a guy yeah. that like what, two months before his UFC debut was on food stamps. You know, it's, it's insane. He was a, a clubber's apprentice. I yeah. believe is what Yeah. So, you know, the, the fighter lifestyle and what these guys go through, guys and girls go through to pursue their dreams. And then if they get to the top, I mean, my goodness, it's special, <clears throat> special types of people, special types of athletes. Yeah. And then Roy Val follows that up. I mean, he beat the number 12 guy. So that puts him immediately in the top 15. Then he's matched up with Kai Kara France, who many thought would be too far too soon for him a top 10 legit guy and they had a barn burner of a fight and had that Kiker. on the main card of 253 by the way too which is a big deal that was a huge pay-per-view yeah. obviously 
Yeah. Kai Kara France, by the way, even though he lost this fight to Roy Bell, I think that fight did a lot for him, too. Because that first round was just wild. Roy Val ends up getting the finish via submission in the second round. And then he's immediately put into a number one contender fight with Moreno. Yeah. If he wins that fight on Saturday, he's the one headlining UFC 256. Yeah. In in, In what would be his fourth UFC fight. Just crazy. Crazy. Yeah. The fact that he so even got paired with a number one contender in his third UFC fight is just bonkers. And it's not like he looked bad. No, I mean, Moreno definitely controlled him on the ground. But, you know, on the feet, Roy Val definitely was the better. He, he's definitely got the better stand-up. And that showed for the short amount of time that they did stand. Obviously, the fight gets taken to the ground. Moreno pretty much controls the positioning the rest of the round. And then, unfortunately, Roy Val does pop his shoulder out of place. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, even though Moreno controlled that on the ground, Roy Val was never in trouble, was working a lot of weird transitions. These these guys are just so quick and stuff. So up until his shoulder, uh, you just kind of had that feeling like, oh, this is going to be a wild three-round war. And then his shoulder popped out of place. So. Which is definitely disappointing, but it, it's still, I don't feel like, you know, it, it ruins his potential no, or anything like not that. At all. You know, even Dana, I think, is a big fan because you saw he tweeted the, the clip of the injury and told him, like, you know, we'll get you right back in there, yeah. like, get healthy, like, that's tough, you know, whatever. So you can tell that Dana definitely likes the kid. And, Dana is kind of proving to me, based on his actions, you know, maybe you want him to be more vocally in support of this division. Right. But he's proven with his actions that he's he's buying in again. Yep. I mean, look at how he's depending on them to really save the end of the year here. And, and if there's one person you want to be, you know, buying into this division, I think Dana White would be the guy, so... Yeah. The now, here's a are question doing something right. Yeah. Here's a question I'll ask you, Dom. Men's flyweight has essentially had it's only had three champions in eight years. You had Johnson Zara, which has been the bulk of it. Then you had Cejudo, now Figueredo. In your opinion, is it better for flyweight? to have a champion with a long sustained run or to have potentially like if you want to go by what Figgy goes to Bantamweight would it be better to see the title trade hands a few times like think of when light heavyweight went through that time where it was like every fight the title changed hands from Chuck to Rampage from Rampage to Forrest from Forrest to uh, Rashad from Rashad to Machida, Machida the Shogun. You know, and I think I, I think I even said this. Maybe it was off before we were recording or something, or earlier in the week. But um, to me, this men's flyweight division, this decade, you know, 2012 to now, compares the most to the light heavyweight division. So, Demetrius Johnson, 11 title defenses, was always the champion. 
John Jones. Eight straight title defenses, then a break, then three more. Always the champion. But then, Demetrius goes away. We've got enter Henry Cejudo. Wins the belt, defends the belt. After John Jones gets into all his trouble, we've got DC. Wins the belt, uh, defends it a couple times. Then, DC bumps up. Henry bumps up. Then, we got a vacant belt here. Somebody's got to fight for the vacant belt. That's again after John comes back. and You know, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, yeah, yeah. John then vacates the belt again. So now we get Jan Blahovich and um, Dominic Reyes for the vacated belt. <laughs> for the vacated flyweight belt, we get Davison versus uh, Joseph Benavidez, top contenders in both divisions. Davison becomes champ. Jan Blahovich comes champ. Davison has already defended his belt and about to do it a second time. Jan is waiting to defend his belt, might even get a super fight. Davison has a super fight in line if he beats um, Brandon Moreno. Do you see what I'm saying here? Um, I, I, see the, I see the parallels. That was a long tangent, and I guess I didn't really answer your question. But, uh, you know, I think it just depends on who's your champion. Do you have a guy that's really marketable that's a long-term champ, like John Jones, like an Anderson Silva? Or do you have a guy like Mighty Mouse, who one of the best ever, but just not very marketable? For Davison here... He seems like he's a little more marketable than DJ and has the talent to be a long-reigning champion. So it's very interesting. Um, I don't like when belts just, oh, here, he won the belt. Oh, and then he loses the belt to this guy. And I think that kind of does less for a division, but I guess it keeps it entertaining at the same time. So it's long-winded, and I don't have a definite answer for you. But that's just kind of where I'm seeing it from both perspectives. I'll give you that okay. much. Let me tell you. Let me see, let me tell you where my head's at here. Because I heard this brought up. I forget if it was Ariel Hawani or Luke Thomas, one of the two, on their podcast. Um, one of them said that basically they were talking about Davison, and they mentioned that it was something. It was kind of an offhand comment where they were just saying that. You know, having that sustained run being beneficial because it allows the promotion to buy in to the champion more. Yeah, build a uh, like they character trust. almost at from yeah, WWE build, terms. It, it build it builds narratives. It, it builds those storylines or whatever you want to call it. So, on one hand, that that's true. You know, you've seen. The best champions of all time. I mean, look at guy like George St. Pierre. Yeah, another one. Another one. Um, it never felt like his division was hurt by his title run. Right. Because there was, especially because there just kept being new contenders pop up. Here, however, you as of now, anyways, we don't have a as full of a roster. We're dealing with about twenty guys, so. What I, what I think can be beneficial to a post-Figurado flyweight division is imagine Moreno gets the belt. And then he loses it to a guy like Gaskar Askarov. Then I'm not saying that they lose it immediately. I'm just saying that they lose it within a few months or whatever. And then maybe he loses it to Brandon Royval or Kai Kara France or even Joseph Benavidez. And then Maybe Moreno gets it again. 
what you see is that it elevates a lot of these guys to be in a champion status. Mm-hmm. So I can see where that can be beneficial at the same time because it's elevating these guys to a, a different level. You know, especially for flyweight, when you have the three champions in eight years, and really, it, it's kind of put them. You know, Johnson, Cejudo, Davison. The moment Davison won the belt. It felt like he was elevated in a sense because he was within that company of Demetrius Johnson. Yeah. With Henry Cejudo. Who Cejudo, very underrated pick for someone in their top ten list, by the yeah, way. I'm just yeah. gonna throw that out there. Um, Mighty Mouse being an obvious potential top five. So it, it elevated him almost immediately. Hadn't even defended yet. And it felt like it was a bit he's a big deal. So I can see where that might be beneficial. And then I also see where it can go the other way. And UFC might have a hard time putting a lot of effort into their promotion of a champion that they don't have the confidence to have a sustained run. Right. If the championship just keeps bouncing around, you can't build one person. Yeah. And I think to your to go back to your comparison to the light heavyweight division, I kind of wonder if that might be what we're seeing with Jan Blahovich, mm-hmm. who, yes, is about to get to his biggest payday of his career, potentially, and a big, the biggest fight of his career, really, against Israel Adesanya. But I, I think that the matchup is definitely being set up so that Israel can be the title holder. Yeah. I think there's a lot of questions and marks about Blahovich as a long-term champion, considering he's had his defeats in the octagon not right. even too long ago. You know, he's he's lost a few times in the UFC, and I, I think there might be some some holdback on the UFC to really buy into him now. If he beats Israel Adesanya, oh. <laughs> Now you're, now you're getting somewhere, right? They're going to have Polish power on all their T-shirts. And that's why I never, you know, I kind of even believe when Dana, he kind of alludes to this a lot. Like, people probably think that if in that matchup that Dana is rooting for Israel Adesanya, that they want Adesanya to win because of his star power and whatnot. But I think they just look at it like there's a benefit to Blahovich winning too. Yeah. Because Adesanya, really, if he loses to Blahovich, it doesn't really, like... It wouldn't hurt him that much. my eyes, it really doesn't. He I goes mean, he up goes a weight back. class that he's never fought in, ever. You know? Uh, and if and Jan wins, it's like, oh my gosh, this dude is actually for real. Who's this 37-year-old that just beat undefeated Israel Adesanya? <laughs> yeah, to me, it's like he just goes back to middleweight, continues potentially dominating there. Yeah. And then down the line could even have that fight with John Jones, whatever. I mean, I, I don't think it really hurts him that much. I think that's like, like the only area from the UFC's perspective that would hurt them a little. Just because you'd imagine they want to do Izzy John if Izzy becomes light heavyweight champ. However, if he loses, it hurts it a little in terms of like the value of that fight. But down the line, he still could fight John. It's just, I think, more so the narrative now, and it just builds even stronger rather than losing and it gets hindered. That's like the only thing 
But in terms of like Izzy as a fighter and as his legacy, it doesn't hurt him that much. Yeah. And kind of bring it all back here. I just, I see the potential in the future for these guys that we're talking about now. Again, the names I brought up. Not even looking at Figueredo, just Brandon Moreno, Alex Perez, even Joseph Benavidez, Brandon Royval, Askar Askarov, Kai Kara France. I mean, even a guy like Alexander Pantoja. He was a guy that I'm pretty sure Pantoja is the one that fought Askarov in his last fight. It was not one-sided by any means. Yep, yep. So Pantoja could very well be the number three guy in the division if he won that fight. You know, it's so close. And I I, I could definitely see multiple of those guys being future champions. And I think that just elevates the rest of the crop. You know, if a guy like Roy Val, a year from now, if he's winning a belt, well, then it's like, well, look at Moreno, beat him. So then that kind of elevates Moreno at the same time. Yep. So I, I think that there's – I think the future of this division is going to be – you're going to see more guys brought in. Tuesday Night Contender um, has been good to the flyweight division. I've seen there's been – they've been putting flyweight fights on there. Shout out Casey Kenny. Yep. <clears throat> and, and I think for the future, you're going to see this division – I don't know if it will happen right away. There's – the effects of COVID are still a factor too, because Dana's said this too. Like, you know, the problem is if they want to do two, when they start doing Tuesday Night Contender next year, you know, these smaller promotions aren't having fights right now. Haven't been all year or for most of the year. When will, when will they start? When will the regional circuit really pick back up? Cause that's where, you bring these guys from, you know, yep. they don't just pop out of thin air. Right. They prove it on the regionals and then they're brought in to test how they do in the big leagues, essentially. So that it could take a while. It might not be a problem that's fixed in 2021. I, again, it all depends on how long this, this uh, current state we're in with COVID kind of, takes keeps its form but by the end of 2021 i would like to my goal for the flyweight division would to be to be at like 30 fighters i would say mm-hmm. maybe more i don't i don't know a realistic growth there but i want to say like 30 32 and then they could even go for more in 2022 when i'm fingers crossed <laughs> life will be back to some sort of normalcy by then. Right. So that's kind of my outlook is it's, it's, I think we're in a, the best time right now to be watching flyweight fights, to be invested in the division. I think is right now. Yeah. And if you're newer to MMA or the UFC, uh, or just been a fan, but never given flyweight the time of day, Now's not a bad time to latch on, especially with a guy like Davison out front carrying this division on his shoulders. Yep. And for however long this kind of hot streak this division on lasts, I think it's going to be 
worthwhile to be checking out these fights to become invested in this group of fighters. Yep. Not even just Davis and Figueredo, who is a stud. Love that guy. Invest in him, please. <laughs> but some of these other contenders, I think, will be worth taking a look. Still have a lot of faith in a guy like Alex Perez, like we mentioned on Monday. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much kind of where I think the state of the division is right now. I think the future is bright with some potential drawbacks. You know, I, I, this hot streak they're on right now, it won't last forever. You'll have those lulls in time. You know, if Davison leaves the division in the next year, there'll probably be a few months where you won't have a champion, perhaps. And, you know, the, Again, every division scary. goes through those, too, you know. Um, it just so happens that these a division like this that's <clears> lighter and never been much in the limelight, it hurts them a little more, I guess, when they go through those valleys. Yeah. You know, actually, here's a question I'll ask you, because I kind of haven't touched on him too much, but Cody Garber, if he wins, and I'll even part two to this question, if he loses – is this move the flyweight going to be a long-term change for him? Your um, I think if he loses, probably not. I think he's right back in Bantamweight. If he wins, it's interesting because he's really not that big of a guy. I know when he, this fight with Davis in very first was supposed to happen, he was already at like 146 pounds, and this was months out. So he's definitely a guy that's capable of making the weight. So if he were to become champion... I could see him staying, even though we know a guy like Cody would definitely want to be like a double champ, uh, and we know he's capable of being champion at 135. But I, short answer, yes, I, I think if he wins, he could stay. But if he loses, I think he goes right back to Bantamweight because he's, what is he, fourth there anyways? So, yeah, that's what I think. Call me crazy because we're big Cody fans. Right. But I wonder if him, if he were to win in that matchup with Davison or Brandon Moreno, I wonder if it would be possibly the worst thing for the division at that time. Because he is a pretty big name. So you wonder if he would hold up the division in a way where he'd be looking for that champ champ fight with a bantamweight guy like Peter Yan or Aljamain Sterling or, right. you know, would he call out someone like TJ Dillashaw to come back down the flyweight and fight him and overstep all these contenders. Right. Sure, in the short term, it could lead to, like, uh, you know, if they did Cody versus TJ3 at flyweight, it would probably be really – it would be good business and it give a lot of eyes on the flyweight division. But I don't think that that – that those eyes are truly on the division at that point. Yeah, and long-term, that fight I don't think helps, you know. That, that is a good point. Um, I can really... feel like the attention is more on the fact that these are two guys that have been known bantamweights fighting at flyweight, but I don't think that they're really looked at as legitimate flyweights. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's a good point. And, I mean, Cody could prove me wrong and have a uh, this be a, like a permanent – change for him at least for the next year year and a half two years whatever and I, I i could see even if he loses potentially hanging around i don't 
know if that would be the case because I think he's going to do better business as a bantamweight if if he doesn't have the belt, you know. <clears throat> but it's it, it definitely makes me wonder. It's like if Davison and Cody fight, like in a way, am I going to be rooting for Davison? As crazy as that sounds. That's true. It's interesting. Yeah. Just- it's intriguing having Cody's name just kind of dangling over the division right now, just like watching yeah, not, every move. Not to get in the hot takes too much, but I've I've had these thoughts about other champions in the past where it's like I, I heard this brought up when Usman was fighting Masvidal. You know, there's a lot of people that maybe don't really care for Kamaru Usman, but you can't deny that. You know, he's had a lot of injury problems, but you can't deny that, like, he's a he's definitely a guy that takes the next contender. He does things the right way as a champion mm-hmm. in that sense. He's not, like, necessarily, you know, like, that was always kind of a problem with Tyron Woodley. Sure, Tyron Woodley would take the next contender, but it was, like, pulling teeth to get him to do that because he wanted to fight someone like Nick Diaz or George St. Pierre. Mm-hmm. Guys who hadn't fought three-plus years. Like, always looking for that super fight, which sure is great, but it just it doesn't do anything for the – it doesn't help the division. And I saw someone say that Masvidal beating Usman would have been bad for the division. And I really thought about it. And I was like, man, that might be true. Like, sure, a fight with Stephen Thompson, like he said he would want to do, would be great. But then he was saying about doing a rematch with Nate Diaz. Mm -hmm. Diaz shouldn't be fighting for a belt. So then there's these guys that have won belts that you wonder, like, was it really good for the division for them to win? Michael Bisping, another controversial one. Right. Defends the title against Dan Henderson, who was ranked 12th at the time. Sure, the George St. Pierre fight was great, and GSP kind of getting that that moment in the moment in the sun before retiring again. But ultimately, it led right back to Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker, which is what it was before. Yeah, that was kind of like the lull or the valley for the middleweight division, like we talked about for the flyweights. That whole time period there, it was great to see Bisbing win it, but then he has a title defense that makes zero sense. Then it's like, oh, he's having this huge fight headlining at Madison Square Garden, and it's against GSP, but it's like, oh, GSP won the belt, and he has no intention of defending it, you know? It, it was a weird time there for middleweight, so... <laughs> It just makes me wonder if, like, some of these guys that do, like, you know, the Bisping win, one of the best, like, just an awesome moment, that knockout of Luke Rockhold that nobody saw coming. It almost, like, in my head sours it when you really think of how he kind of held up the division, in a sense, mm-hmm. for, a lo- for a pretty long time. And I'm not going to blame him for that. That's not his responsibility to be worried about the health of the division, you know, he did what he, I mean, ultimately to his credit, he did sign on to fight Robert Whitaker, then got injured. And that's kind of how the GSP fight happened, but still just talking kind of through it in my own 
out loud and in my head. Makes you wonder how, you know, was Henry Cejudo good for flyweight in the long run? Right. Or some of these guys that, you know, that's why I asked, would Cody Garbrandt really be good for flyweight in the long run? Because we're big Cody guys, but it's going to make, it's going to be definitely in my head. That's going to be a tough fight for me to watch when it happens. Because in my head, it's going to be like, I, I definitely want to see this division move forward and continue to improve. I just don't know if a guy like that, I don't know where his head's at to, so much so that it's like I almost don't know if I can even root for him in that matchup. It's right. crazy. Right. But do you have any final thoughts on the state of the division? I mean, I think that's where we stand, you know, essentially go on a history lesson, you know, and just break it all down and where this division's been looked at for years, where it's looked at now, our champions, you know, the prospects, the veterans, the all the little nooks and crannies of this division, and here we are now. It seems we have a very dominant champion. He's on track to make history here in a couple weeks. And uh, this next fight here at 256... Uh, goes a very long way in this state of the men's flyweight division. Completely agreed. I think it's going to be a banger of a fight, too. Mm. Moreno's going to break it to him, regardless of his, I guess, deficiencies in comparison to Davison. You know, I think Davison has the advantage in most areas. There's the added element of the three weeks having to cut weight again, which I know both guys have to do. But for Moreno, it's going to be easier than for Davison. Right. There's that element. Just the three-week turnaround in general. It's unprecedented. It's exciting. It's fun. Can't wait. Oh, it's going to be awesome. That card is awesome. And it's crazy we're only a couple weeks out from breaking that down for everyone. I really think it's going to be a great fight. And assuming it is, it'll do a lot. For getting eyes on the division. Oh, 100%. But that is the end of part one. As we, as we, I think that's how we're doing our series, right? Parts. Yeah. Since we're, this is technically episode, I think, 44. Yes, sir. The podcast. So part one of the state of dot, dot, dot. And we just did the flyweight division. Yeah, this is a limitless type of... Uh category for special episodes you know yeah. like it's you probably mentioned, my fa- it's probably my favorite yeah this topic or idea really spurred up out of nowhere and we kind of love all the directions it can take us so but this there's no better way to start it off than with the division that's red hot right now coming off the big ufc 255 pay-per-view this was a uh, perfect timing yeah and if you want to give us your thoughts on kind of this concept and how we did here uh if you're watching on youtube Feel free to leave a comment below. Um, if you're checking this out on Spotify, Apple, or Google, uh, or any other podcast website, feel free to go to our Instagram, which Dom will plug here in a minute, and let us know in the comments on one of our posts what you thought of this concept, and maybe even if there's ways we can improve upon it. Or, Noah, you know what else they could do? What's that? They could venture on over to our Anchor page and leave us a voice 
message to be featured in future episodes of the podcast. How about that? Now that, that sounds like a bargain. Yeah, what a deal. Yeah. As for our next couple episodes, Friday and Monday, well, let me let me start there. <laughs> Y'all know Thursday is Turkey Day. It's Thanksgiving. It is a day that me and my co-host, Dominic, will be spending with our families and um, we're going to be in a lot of pain from the amount of food, but it's going to be a good day. However, that's usually when we record our Friday preview episodes. Right. So for this week, you guys are going to be getting a special, a Saturday special. So we'll be recording that on Friday, which honestly is going to be good because we'll get to see the weigh-ins. Yeah, and stuff. everything will be actually official for the first time. Time when we do so if anything, if anything comes about, uh, if any freaking fights get canceled, we don't have to sit there and preview it for 20 minutes. <laughs> All to be wasted. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think it'll be good. It's not a permanent change just for this week. Right. That'll be coming on Saturday, headlined by a very big fight, literally and figuratively. Yeah, some would say number one contender, Nella. Not quite. I think there's a there's a there's a there's a, a predator there's a predator in the wings that's well uh, I guess in my head I already had that fight between Francis and Stepe booked I was thinking of the yeah. other guy John Jones I don't know heavyweight division what's going on yeah it's definitely important you got number two Curtis Blades going up against number four Derek Lewis at heavyweight it's a matchup that hasn't happened which is so surprising. Hard to believe, also, yeah. <laughs> very exciting. You're going to get that classic grapplers, power puncher matchup, which will be very fun to watch, hopefully. But we'll be previewing that entire card. That'll be coming to you guys on Saturday. Saturday special, Saturday Night Live, whatever you want to call it. It's coming. And then Monday, per usual, we'll be recapping saturday's action and for both of those we'll be given any news that comes about from now until then but dom tell the good people where they can find you on social media you can find me on twitter and instagram at decently 14 and you can find our podcast on twitter and instagram at b a j underscore mma podcast as for me if you go to my bio on twitter or instagram at nt baker underscore you'll be taken to our link tree which can take you to any of the platforms that our podcast is on the twitter and instagram are also on there but the youtube channel the anchor page spotify google apple it's all on there it takes you directly to where our podcast is on those platforms and there's a link on there if you want to become a supporter of the podcast. That just provides us with a few dollars a month. All that money goes back into improving the podcast, whether it be the audio equipment or down the line doing a video podcast. So we just appreciate you guys listening and supporting us in any way you do. But that option is available as well. And again, you can find all that if you go to my bio on Twitter or Instagram at NTBaker underscore. But with that... We're out.
And we're going to see y'all on Saturday.